This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In this episode, clinician and CIIS professor Giselle Fernandez-Osterhold has an illuminating conversation with UCSF psychiatrist Brian Anderson on the benefits, risks, and therapeutic applications of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. This event was recorded during a live online event on May 6, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Brian. It's so nice to be here with you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Giselle. It's great to see you. Yeah, so our conversation today, we're talking about psychedelic mushrooms, and we know that they grow in many parts of the world, in North and South America, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in Australia, actually in all continents except Antarctica. And there are findings of prehistoric rock art offering a hypothesis that mushrooms were used in religious rituals 6,000 years ago. Um, psilocybin mushrooms have been used in ceremonies in Mexico and Central America as a sacrament for thousands of years. And it was first introduced to the United States here in the late 50s by Gordon Watson and his wife, Valentina, after they came back from Oaxaca and it became news in local magazines. And today, as we're here to talk about the therapeutic use of psilocybin for the treatment of anxiety and depression. But before we get into the details of what the research shows and of your work in this field, how about we set the frame of our conversation by first clarifying the differences between magic mushrooms used in specific cultural and ceremonial contexts versus the psilocybin used in research here in the U.S.? Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, it's it is I think really important as you already mentioned to recognize that the use of psilocybin mushrooms has a long-standing tradition in a number of communities um, throughout the Americas and and, and elsewhere, um, and that this really predates sort of the the very initial knowledge that we have of this um, in biomedicine. So a lot of the um, clinical trials that we see today. Um, are building off of uh, research that was in initiated in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And even that uh, medical research, you know, initially uh, took a lot of information from uh, indigenous communities that have longstanding wisdom about how to use these as, as tools for um, spiritual healing and other purposes. Um, so I think it's a really important framing, certainly for us to start with. 
Mm-hmm. And and also the the way that the mushroom is prepared, right? So in these ceremonies, they would you know many times uh, cultivate the mushrooms and get them in nature and use it uh, in a natural form. And in the research, when we are discussing here today, we're going to be talking about psilocybin assisted psychotherapy. Um, it's not exactly the mushroom that um, these uh, communities used. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So in in the clinical trials that we're mostly going to be talking about today, um, uh, the investigators have used just a pure synthetic version of psilocybin, which really is just one of the um, psychoactive compounds that you can find in psilocybin mushrooms. Um, And so, yeah, this question does come up a lot. You know, do you ever give mushrooms to uh, participants in research? I'm only aware of one study that actually happened in in Brazil, um, maybe about 10 years ago in a psychology department where psilocybin mushrooms were harvested, they're chemically characterized, and they were given to uh, healthy volunteer participants uh, to assess the effects. But beyond that, all the other studies going back to the um, 50s and 60s was was all pure synthetic psilocybin. Mm Yeah, so the psilocybin and its related compounds are, are referred to as being hallucinogens with, because they promote a change in perception and, and an internal visionary experience. They're known as being psychedelic because it's uh, mind manifesting. And they're also known as entheogens, um, becoming God or divine within. So these terms are often used interchangeably uh, because they speak of the different dimensions of the magic mushrooms. Would you like to elaborate on the effects that psilocybin may produce on the mind, body, and soul when taken in high doses? Sure. And, you know, you you listed three sort of key terms that we see a lot in the medical literature, hallucinogen, psychedelic, and and entheogen. Um, You know, I I imagine that depending on the, the research setting, uh, and what people were volunteering for that could certainly uh, change the outcome that people would would report. What are the effects, right? Um, I think it's also really notable that um, the modern research with psilocybin starting in the in the two thousands, um, you know, the first study that really kind of put on the map a lot of this research was not a clinical treatment study. It was actually assessing the the. Uh, mystical type and the spiritual type effects, right? As we know, the uh, study out of Johns Hopkins by uh, Roland Griffiths, um, Bill Richards, Bob Jesse, and that team, they specifically looked at what might be called sort of transcendent effects, sort of feeling outside of oneself, connected to the larger universe around you, beyond space and time. Um, And, you know, at higher doses, um, this certainly is seen in a number of studies, effects like that. Um, and yet, you know, there's a number of different traditions that we can look at in the literature that look at um, lower doses as well. Um, moderate doses, like is used in a lot of the studies today. Um, but when, when we're talking about higher dose studies, um, you're right, there's these kind of entheogen-like effects or, or you know, what people are starting to associate more with this idea of a psychedelic mystical type effects are the sort of stepping outside of the self or looking at the at the the core root of the word ecstasy sort of um being outside of of self um these are the effects that 
I think we we hear most about in in the news today and seem to be associated with um, actual therapeutic benefit um, when um, when we're looking at treating patients in these trials. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting because if we go back to the 1960s in, in Boston and that uh, famous Good Friday experiment, which was one of the first studies that scientifically evaluated the potential of psilocybin, right? It was conducted by uh, Walter Pankey and, and uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were at Harvard at the time. And I think they actually lost their their jobs there in, because of this, because they were overseeing the study, um, that study, do you want to talk about that a little bit and, and, and how it links uh, to the current studies, you know, on this um, idea that the mystical experiences are really uh, key in, in effect? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the controversy about how Timothy Leary and his colleagues uh, ended up leaving Harvard is is, is complex, and I'll, um, I'll I'll leave that for someone else who maybe knows that better. I don't think it was because they particularly did the Good Friday experiment, but certainly some of the um, what 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 happened after that, um, what was involved with their leaving the institution. Um, but the the Good Friday experiment was one of the studies that they conducted at Harvard, um, along with the Concord Prison experiment and others, where they were examining. Um, with the tools that were available to psychology at the time, what are the outcomes of high-dose psilocybin experiences? And what um, I think of as is really notable about that um, study and really commendable is that they weren't just looking to see, is it is it a treatment? They were, um, and not just looking to see, does it cause psychosis, like a lot of other investigators were wondering about psychedelics at the time, but they they wanted to assess can psychedelics like psilocybin, when taken in a really supportive setting um, amongst people with a predetermined set? So they were just working with uh, seminarians or people who already have a spiritual and religious background. Um, if given in a setting where they might be primed to have a mystical type experience, could they, um, could they elicit or could they occasion uh, what would be uh, quantified with, with scales? as being akin to the types of experiences that um, saints from the Judeo-Christian tradition had talked about in, in the sort of in older texts of being in touch with a higher being, leaving oneself um, in extreme states of bliss or uh, deep knowledge. Um, and they did find that high psilocybin led to those experiences more than, than people who had a control substance. Um, and importantly, they also found that sometimes people had um, really challenging experiences with high-dose psilocybin, and that didn't actually come out in the original papers, thanks to some of the research that uh, Rick Doblin had done, in, I think in the 90s, going back and evaluating what were the outcomes. It then came out later that some people had a very hard time with that. And so I think we need to, you know, as we talk about all these studies, really keep in mind what might be really good-sounding effects transcending of self and having a state of bliss. And then also what are the challenging and hard parts about, about this work that we really need to be transparent about too. Yeah, and we're going to get there tonight. So, yeah. But before we go into the hard aspects of, of the work, so here we're establishing that um, 
you know, both from the research in the 60s and the research in the 2000s, like the ones you mentioned um, at Johns uh, Hopkins, um, the the investigation, if psilocybin is conducted in a, in a setting that is safe and that there's enough preparation and integration, there, there are... Um, this possibility of mystical type of experiences. And, and that has uh, paved the way to look into uh, applications in the treatment of, of psychological suffering, especially related to cancer and end-of-life illnesses. And so here in the United States, we know of NYU and Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, UCLA, UCSF. A lot of uh, these studies are connected to palliative care and the treatment of anxiety in face of, of cancer diagnosis. And some other studies investigating the treatment of depression. So would you like to expand a little bit and, and talk about uh, some of these studies, um, the overall research frame, um, discuss some of the therapeutic outcomes, and, and also bring in a little bit of, of, of your work and the research that you have been involved in? Yeah, great. I mean, the, the applications of psychedelics like psilocybin and, and palliative care is something I think is, is a really uh, rich area that I think our, our patients could really benefit from from having more rigorous information available. Um, as you said, uh, there's been research on how to treat distress in, for instance, patients with cancer. Um, going back to um, you know many decades, uh, some pioneering work also from Walter Penke and, and Bill Richards in Maryland in the, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, as well as um, Eric Cast using LSD and Sidney Cohen, really laid the groundwork for some um, foundational studies that came out, um, as you mentioned, Charlie Grobe's work in UCLA that came out in around 2010, uh, soon followed by two studies at NYU and Johns Hopkins um, that were um, double-blind, randomized controls trials comparing either psilocybin to um, in its full dose combined with psychotherapy, um, comparing that to such a small dose of psilocybin that it shouldn't have an effect, as they did at Johns Hopkins, or, or an active uh, control um, like, uh, like niacin. Um, there were large effects that were seen in, in really um, sort of gold standard measures of depression, anxiety. Um, and this has really, I think, opened up the field for, for more research, like, like the pilot study we did at UCSF. Um, but, you know, the the big picture that I keep on coming back to with this work is that, um, you know, even with a, with a substance like an SSRI, you know, um, something like fluoxetine or Prozac that we call an antidepressant, it may, it may be good for depression. It may help, but it also probably helps some other things, anxiety and other conditions. Um, and so just because psilocybin may help depression doesn't just mean that it's an antidepressant. Um, and so as we've seen some initial really positive um, early findings of how psilocybin therapy can help mood and anxiety in cancer patients. Um, it's also, I think, telling that these studies have found measures of uh, death transcendence, you know, change with uh, high-dose psilocybin. Um, and there's anecdotal reports of patients find it easier to just open up and talk with their loved ones sometimes after these treatments. Um, and so, there's a lot of sort of interesting early data that we can follow to see how this might be a um, possibly an important treatment to offer people towards the end of life. 
It's my understanding from reviewing uh, most of of the research uh, that the the focus on palliative care that addresses the psychological, the existential, the spiritual distress um, experienced by by the dying um, has tremendous. positive outcomes with psilocybin because uh, it's described as the the demoralization syndrome right that that uh, patients experience at the end of life and um, they feel hopeless and helpless and the meaninglessness it's really an existential distress that is at the core of the suffering there in in palliative care and 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 psilocybin then brings in um, this enhanced sense of existential and spiritual well-being that then it's looked at as a key factor in the improvement of of a psychological and, and social functioning um, to deal with that distress. Now, when you're talking about uh, depression, uh, then there's other components there, um, such as the need for psychotherapy. And um, I can't help it but to remember this article that just came out now last month by the Imperial College of London that compares uh, the use of antidepressant, I think, Lexapro with psilocybin. And uh, do you want to mention something about that study? Yeah, the um, so the study you're referring to, uh, the lead author was Robin Carhart Harris, um, who um, he and his team at Imperial College uh, performed what is the first modern trial where they um, compared psilocybin therapy, meaning two doses of moderate high dose psilocybin with psychological support. They compared that to a head to head comparison with uh, escitalopram or Lexapro. Um, their, their primary outcome measure of depression didn't actually show that the, the two were significantly different um, after six weeks of the intervention. But they did have a number of other measures that did show that, um, that the psilocybin treatment group seemed to be doing better in terms of their depression. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, great to see more trials happening, more patients um, having experience with, with psilocybin and and starting to ask some of these real world questions. You know, if, if you have a patient that you wanna consider, should I send them to a, a research study to, to try this? Or if this is an approved medication, would I you know, refer this versus something else? It's great to see that sort of research start to um, attempt to answer those, those questions. Um, and again, you know, it's, not clear to me that psilocybin is necessarily an antidepressant, even though it may certainly help with depression in some patients. Um, at the same time, something you were talking about, about how psilocybin might be helpful in palliative care is, you know, people who are facing a life-threatening illness, maybe having a sort of a sense of hopelessness or a loss of meaning in life, um, that can be really traumatic too. Um, and so to what extent, you know, should be, we be thinking about psilocybin as a, when combined with talk therapy as a way to treat trauma and trauma related disorders. Um, you know, this is something I know that you're very familiar with is addressing trauma. And I, you know, I really appreciate the insights of one of my colleagues, Dr. Alicia Danforth, who likes to say that, you know, any psilocybin session can become a trauma session. Um, so how, you know, if we're treating depression, but sort of traumatic experiences come up, um, psilocybin therapy 
needs to be able to address all that safely if we're going to ask per- participants and patients to undergo these experiences with us. Yeah, so that's the importance of um, a, you know assessment of the patient to see what is the presenting problem, what are the symptoms, um, you know, what are the conditions in which this person. Uh, may have what kind of uh, previous experiences they might have had with altered states of consciousness and how do we prepare them for that? And and even when um, an experience with psilocybin or any other entheogen or, or hallucinogen uh, can be very powerful and it can um, induce mystical-like experiences and, and healing and, and bring about an overall sense of, of well-being. Um, how is that integrated? How is that sustained? And so we already have, I think, at this point in the field, uh, the, 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 it's established that psychotherapy is a crucial and, and essential part of the healing. Right. Because just the medicine alone, which offers tremendous potential and and, and awakens this innate healing capacity that sometimes has been dormant um, in itself is is not alone. So it does need to have a whole uh, support system around even how these medicines are taken um, with a preparation before, a right setting during, and an integration after for these to have the right effect. And for some people, um, it may not be the best type of treatment, right? And so my question to you now is, um, what are the con- counterindications or, or dangers in this kind of treatment modality? What, do, what are the risks or, or side effects besides a person potentially being uh, traumatized by a journey? Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking, speaking of screening, right, that, that's, you, you said it and I totally agree. This is, this is a key, key part of this is, is who should these treatments or these experiences not not be offered to. Um, and I think we have a, a fair idea. It seems like there's a, a fair bit of a agreement in the field about there's some people who have pre-existing uh, psychotic conditions, um, you know, bipolar disorder, um, people who are in extreme states of crisis already, um, you know, probably would, would not benefit and very likely could be harmed by going through these experiences. Um, and, and we, we know that for better or worse, because um, these medicines, these drugs like psilocybin and LSD were given to a lot of different types of people um, in the mid-century. And um, so the guidelines that we have today were sort of found by, um, you know, trial by fire. Um, and it's great that we follow them. And yet, because a lot of the clinical trials are are conservative, especially early on in a field, this is typical. There's a number of people who, patients with particular conditions who have not been um, exposed to psilocybin and, and other compounds. And so we actually don't have that great of an idea of some of the safety parameters. Um, you know, in particular, again, thinking about palliative care, you know, how, how sick, how frail might someone be that you wouldn't want to offer them these treatments? What, what types exactly of heart conditions are appropriate and not um, before undergoing uh, psilocybin therapy? Um, you know, are there ways to use other treatments to sort of prevent a bad outcome? 
I think a lot of these questions still need to be asked. And as we treat sicker and sicker patients, we will, you know, with informed consent and doing the best job we can to make sure it's safe, we'll start to learn some of these parameters. But, you know, in general, I, I do worry about people with pre-existing heart conditions. This has been screened out of all the current studies, all the current trials. And yet we don't have a great sense that if someone had maybe like a heart attack two or three years ago, but they're doing pretty well today, you know, how appropriate is it to give them a high dose psychedelic session? Because we just don't actually have a lot of information on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't help it, but just think about Stan Groff uh, back in Maryland when he was taking the cases that, you know, people with severe mental illness that weren't getting better with other types of psychiatric treatment, and he would take those to try out um, uh, psychedelics. And so it's pretty far out uh, what he did there. And then nowadays in the research, um, if a a person has uh, been diagnosed with bipolar, they are automatically not qualifying. So the, the inclusion and exclusion criteria for participants has changed quite a bit in these uh, controlled trials. Um, any other exclusion criteria that you see? So heart conditions, um, bipolar, psychotic uh, symptoms, um, any other um, exclusion criteria that you would like to mention? Well, well, one thing, I mean, patients with bipolar disorder, there's at least um, a couple studies underway or in preparation for treating patients with bipolar 2 uh, so patients who haven't had full manic episodes in the past, but who do suffer from really severe, uh, hard-to-treat depressive episodes. So that is being investigated now. And I think we'll learn more about the safety and efficacy, certainly f- from some initial studies. Um, you know, something that you and I have talked about before, and I think is important is, you know, again, going back to the issue of trauma, is, you know, how do we safely work with people who have trauma histories, uh, who maybe have um dissociation as part of their condition um, that, you know, it seems like that that can be very challenging and, and not always beneficial for people. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, it's a different molecule, but um, it was really, uh, it was really good to see the data that just came out about MDMA and treating PTSD, severe PTSD, including people with dissociation. So um, some psychedelics might be more appropriate and some types of psychotherapy might be more appropriate. But thinking about classic psychedelics like psilocybin, um, yeah, people with severe trauma backgrounds, this this may be very powerful and it may, you know, it may we may need to make modifications to the treatment protocols, maybe lower doses, maybe more sessions of psychotherapy before and after in order to make it appropriate for people with with significant trauma histories. Mm -hmm. What are the main challenges in in conducting research with psilocybin? Has has people had, you know, difficult experiences? I mean, really negative experiences? Is it difficult to to set up a study? What are, yeah, what are the challenges there? Yeah. I mean, I think that depends a lot on 
on when you're talking about, you know, if we look at some of the really pioneering work that was done 20 years ago, I think there were many more hurdles as far as um, concern from ethics committees, uh, difficulty with fundraising, um, and a real hesitation from regulatory agencies like the FDA to see this work move forward. But thanks to the careful work of people like um, the team at Johns Hopkins, uh, Charlie Grobe at UCLA, the team at NYU and, and elsewhere, um, you know, this work has been, people have been able to show proof of uh, concept that you, you can do this safely, right? Which is so, so important here. Um, these days, there's a real blossoming of the field with people investigating, uh, in particular with psilocybin, its application for treating uh, addictions, um, certainly mood, anxiety disorders, um, other things like eating disorders and OCD. Um, and so, you know, you, you can do it, but the, the many uh, regulatory steps and just the real cost of conducting the research is significant. Um, and there's always the question of, you know, how do you train your clinical team? I think that comes up a lot if someone wants to start doing this work and they haven't done it before. Where do you get good supervision? Where do you get mentorship? Where do you get good oversight of how to train your staff to really um, be able to do well by the patients who are going to entrust their well-being to the to the investigative team? Um, and so I think that's a real hard part is getting a good team together who feels comfortable especially when people are having challenging experiences and who at least have um, the possibility of getting supervision and, and learning through these experiences in a constructive way is, is a really important part. And, and that takes just sort of really time and study and getting to know the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming here we're talking about multidisciplinary teams right uh, with doctors with uh, psychotherapists and with usually a whole staff um, to be able to support patients in in this long you know because usually some studies are just with one journey some studies have more right but it's uh, in any way a big holding uh, in order to to complete a treatment and when you think about the parameters of, of the research, you know, including the multidisciplinary team, sometimes two therapists in the room with the patient, long hours for the sessions, um, you know, a thorough assessment, a lot of psychotherapy before, during and after um, doctors. And, and, you know, how do you see this kind of treatment being transferable to, to a mainstream offering of psilocybin assisted psychotherapy? therapy yeah well i mean uh Giselle, i think you did a great job there just characterizing a lot of the details that we need to be very transparent about when we are reporting the outcomes of this research you know who is in the room what is the training of the people doing this work how many hours of psychotherapy were were involved in the study and did the investigators even call it psychotherapy you know is it is it enough to call it psychological support is that is that really different in nature than having trained psychotherapists um, who will you know meet with people for multiple sessions before and after? Um, there's a lot of questions I think as the field we're going to be able to start to answer. You know how much preparation is really necessary, and for what types of patients, right? And it, and it may be that one laboratory conducts a study and it shows that you know. The, the headline might be psilocybin wasn't helpful for this condition. 
but it's not just psilocybin. It is psilocybin plus all of these components of a really complex behavioral intervention that if the hours of psychotherapy before or after are different or the um, the clinical stance of the facilitators is, is rather different, that may explain things far more than the dose of the, of the medication. Um, and so I think we'll start teasing that out, but we'll have to pay really close attention to the types of details you just listed off. Mm-hmm. And, and those those details, um, you know, changes the results of the study and, and how you are, understand the effects of, of the psilocybin. And, uh, and so because there's always the placebo, right? And so that's an interesting thing, too, because some studies um, that you see an improvement, uh, some, of, some of, of the MAP studies, of course, there's a big difference. And you really see that the people who did take the MDMA improved significantly Um and you know they have a very thorough way of following through and 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 looking at the results after. Um, but some people with placebo actually f- get better, and so that's the phenomena I think that it, it, under certain conditions of care. Um, that includes uh, a psychotherapy and includes a certain holding and includes um, a certain way that the person can get in contact with themselves and with their trauma, um, they may feel better even without the medicine. And so it's a it's an interesting paradox why we look at these medicines as being so transformative and so um, kind of like a, a beam of hope. Um, you can also look at the other side. There's some sort of element that uh, may be healing just by itself um, with the with what gets activated for the patient but if we're thinking about uh, most of the clinical trials if we know that they have been focused on individual treatment um, and we know that it's been very expensive um, to run that kind of treatment what are the possibilities for uh, this kind of treatment to eventually become, more affordable, accessible? Um, do you think that at some point we'll be able to have group therapy or health insurance and things like that um, mm-hmm. with a psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're touching on some some really big themes. You know, what what if this gets approved and it's not really accessible to people? What if what if this is available, but like a lot of things in mental health and healthcare only benefit some members of our communities, um, is it really going to be transformative anymore? Um, certainly a, a, an issue. Um, you know, moving beyond questions of, of economics, I think, you know, when people bring up uh, group therapy or at least group preparation and integration, if not also group administration of, of the medications, um, it, it may be important for us to get to the point where we can think about that as far as healthcare delivery and, and how to make it more economically affordable. But um, it, my bet is it will certainly change the intervention itself. It'll change the type of care that we can provide with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies um, because of the importance of, of the group, especially probably in integration. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about earlier today was how so many of the studies that we have are, are short, as, as is common in in, um, in biomedical research that we don't know what the real outcome is of these uh, treatments. Um, do we need to 
have people come back every three or six months? What is the best way to have um, whatever benefits people may gain, have them really endure? And, you know, something that is a sort of tried and true um, lesson from the communities where where um, psychedelics have been used for a long time is that um, the people around you are an important part of the integration. So we were we were really excited to have the opportunity at UCSF in, in 2018 to conduct uh, our uh, group therapy um, study with, with psilocybin and uh, demoralized uh, long-term AIDS survivor men. Um, and I think it was really powerful that the participants got to connect with each other during the um, study where we had group therapy before um, as part of the preparation. All of the medication sessions were conducted individually. So the participants were by themselves with their clinicians. Um, and then we had group therapy afterwards to integrate. And to sort of anecdotally, it was it was very powerful to see the participants being there for each other, um, hear them talk about how they were looking forward to getting through the psilocybin experiences, even when they were really challenging, in order to be part of the group and, and process in a group. Um, and, and frankly, sometimes the experiences with psilocybin were, were really hard, either during the day and even sometimes for, for days after. People had, were still processing through some really challenging memories or, um, or visions or experiences that they had. And being able to receive support in a group from people who they thought were like them and had been through similar challenging experiences or sometimes just unusual experiences seemed to be a great comfort especially for a group of people that are um, rather uh, traditionally marginalized um, gay men and, and rather isolated uh, long-term AIDS survivors is uh, you know, it's a community that was hit very hard by the epidemic and, and have, they've lost a lot of loved ones. And so to get to see um, long-term survivors connect with one another um, and really open up emotionally, you know, psilocybin or not was very powerful, but certainly going through these experiences together was also, I think, a very important part of whatever benefits they may have had from the study. Wonderful. That was a wonderful study that you were involved in. I, I love the, the aspect of the group work and that sense of community and, and strengthening one another and, and the shared space um, and, and the commonality also of experiences and, and the possibility of um, being accessible. And so I, I do hope that in some way you get to reproduce that uh, in your work with UCSF. And um, yeah, because it's a, it's a great model. And, and the, as we're talking about the clinical trials and the MDMA for PTSD is in phase three. We just saw the news this week, right, from MAPS. Um, a revolutionary contribution to psychology and psychiatry. Where's the development of the research with psilocybin in this moment? Mm -hmm. um, so psilocybin um, clinical trials, there's been a lot of small studies. So single site studies, phase one or early phase two. Um, there's currently now uh, two um, industry uh, funded studies um, both looking at different types of depression. Um, and there's also a, um, a psilocybin study for alcohol use disorder. 
that finished recently. The results hopefully will be published soon out of um, NYU. Um, and then it looks like psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for alcohol use disorder will probably be the first clinical trial that's a sort of a, a, a phase three um, for that drug. So, um, you know, if if MDMA's first indication to go to the FDA is probably going to be severe PTSD, um, for psilocybin, it's likely to be a type of depression or possibly even um, alcohol use disorder before that. Mm-hmm. And it's entering phase three. Yeah, they're they're planning the phase three trial now. Mm-hmm. Now, last November 2020, the state of Oregon voted on Measure 109, a ballot issue known as the Oregon Psilocybin Service Act, and that approved the legalization of the use of psilocybin for adults in controlled clinical setting for treatment of mental health issues. And so they're planning the clinics um, in the state of Oregon. And so let's talk a little bit about that because um, that is is happening. And, and what I'm curious uh, to hear from you is that even though this measure was an incredible conquer, both the American Psychiatric Association and the Oregon Psychiatric Physician Association opposed the measure. What what are your thoughts on what's happening in Oregon with the mm-hmm. clinics? Well, it's it's very pioneering, for certain. Um, I'm not I'm not surprised that this comes out of Oregon, which has also really led the way. In, in this country on, on other sort of controversial health issues like uh, medical aid in dying or death with dignity was really pi- pioneered in Oregon, um, as well as um, you know the regulation of, of cannabis for use by adults that happened in Oregon before it even happened in California. Um, so with, with Oregon legalizing psilocybin therapy, or I should say, um, therapy with psilocybin mushrooms, going back to what we started talking about, this is not going to be uh, psilocybin that comes in a capsule form that's uh, sold and approved by the FDA. It actually is uh, doesn't change anything about federal regulation of pure synthetic psilocybin as a, as a medicinal product. Um, but some form of psilocybin mushrooms will be available for use, like you said, in a controlled clinical setting. Um, and, you know, I, I look at that as a it's part of the um, laboratory of the United States where states actually, uh, states regulate medical practice and, and uh, you know, medical care. The FDA regulates the interstate commerce of uh, medical products. Um, and if the state of Oregon chooses to legally produce forms of psilocybin mushrooms and make them available as a type of treatment. Uh, it's very innovative. It's very experimental. Um, I don't know how the federal government is going to respond to that. Uh, they may choose to not interfere. They may choose to interfere. The clinics might not actually happen. We'll have to see. Um, but I do think it's a very, again, pioneering uh, way of providing these still experimental treatments to people, patients, or people who don't have mental health diagnoses. Um, but to do it well and to do it safely, the state of Oregon has a lot of work in front of it. It needs to define clearly how they're going to certify facilitators, um, think through what are going to be safe protocols, how often should people do this? Is it is it okay to do a treatment once a week? Should it be no more than once a month? Um, and Importantly, I think when things don't go well, 
what it, what it's going to be the response, not just of the Oregon Health Authority, but also the community of providers. How are they going to learn from adverse events and train people to do better and try to prevent that moving forward? A whole sort of culture of care and science of treatment needs to be developed. Um, so Oregon has a, a lot of work to do, but I hope that we, we can learn a lot from what, what they do accomplish. Yeah, it's an incredible task. So the Oregon Health Authority is going to decide and who is going to be licensed as a facilitator. They will determine qualifications, education, training, and like you mentioned, creating a code of professional conduct for these facilitators so that hopefully people can learn from it and 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 sustain a, a um, ethical and um, liable use of, of psilocybin. What, what are the essential skills that you think, and you mentioned that in, re, in relationship to the research too, you know, what are the essential skills that you think facilitators should have when guiding people through psilocybin sessions? Mm. Well, you know, you, you mentioned um, interdisciplinary teams earlier, Giselle. So I think, I think that's really important is to if anyone wants to take sort of take on the responsibility and onus of providing these experiences in a safe way is first recognizing that I don't think any one sort of uh, professional group or any one sort of class of practitioners knows all the answers and, and knows what to do. So if anything, I would start with good communication between people of different experience levels so that we can learn from each other. And when we don't know what to do, that we know when to refer to other providers um, or to get consultation when, for instance, there may be very serious medical contraindications that you're not sure if perhaps it's safe for someone to undergo this. And, and who do you look to for, um, you know, with humility, who do you look to for guidance on whether or not to even proceed with the treatment in the first place? I would start there. Um, and then something else I think, um, you know, has been highlighted a lot in the field is it's really important to be able to build trust with people as part of the preparation to make sure that um, you can safely work with them and help them get through what may be beautiful, very helpful experiences, also challenging experiences, which can be helpful, but take sort of more work to get through. Um, and if someone is present, warm, um, and able to build a strong connection with people before the experiences and really ideally make the experience and the treatment about that uh, healing connection and not just about the drug or the experience itself. That seems to be a really foundational piece. Um, now, how do we do that? And how do we work with people of different backgrounds in different communities uh, is, is a huge question. Um, so there's no you know one practitioner that's best for everyone and especially when people come with different needs, um, isolation, uh, experiences of stigma, um, you know, and actually, you know, even distrust of the medical field. Um, you know, how do you work with people who are seeking help, but maybe have a really hard time building trust in the first place? Um, again, it comes back to, for me, a lot of it's communication, supervision, and, and a good ability to learn and um, understand that you're going to get it wrong sometimes too. Um, is a very foundational piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the idea of multidisciplinary team and, and, and a knowledge of 
of the both physical and psychological effects that these medicines may bring about. Um, I, I, you know, knowledge in, in mental health and, and the ability to support people through trauma, um, being um, experience and diversity, you know, and inclusion and understanding people's walks of life and ways in which they, um, their experience has not been held right by the medical system and, and how to validate that, how to have also uh, different cultural elements represented, whether that is race or, or sexuality or gender identity, um, social economics, so that people can feel like, oh, I can be myself self here. I can be understood here, right? Um, then we have to think also about, you know, familiarity of, of the professionals with these mystical states of consciousness, their, their ability to, to, to cultivate um, equanimity and acceptance, you know, in intense moments, in moments of change, ability to um, support somebody, make meaning on an existential level um, of what may emerge. And so there's a lot of uh, different qualities. And we're here, you know, representing in, in some way a, a mainstream field, you as a doctor and me as, as a clinician, as a mental health practitioner. Do you think that there's space for non-licensed clinicians and alternative healers uh, in this field, in this idea of a multidisciplinary team? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, stepping back and just thinking about is is the medical model, is treatments in medical clinical settings the, the only place that these types of experiences can and should happen? And, and I, I don't think so. I think there's, you know, many traditions and use outside of medical treatment that need to be um, sort of respected and uh, sort of revered for, you know, the, the knowledge that they have. Um, just just want to, I just want to start by saying that, um, you know, to, to be focused on this question of if these are medical treatments, particularly like in the United States, if these are medical treatments, what, what is the role of people of different levels of uh, credentials? Um, you know, certainly having a, um, a medical degree, um, you know, graduate training in psychotherapy is, I think, can probably be very helpful, um, but is not always, is definitely not sufficient and is not always necessarily the best training. You know, I can share briefly, there was, there was one clinical trial uh, treating patients with um, a um, mental health condition and um, a uh, investigator who was sitting for participants in that study so that there was a psychiatrist sitting with him. Um, and the, uh, the reaction of the uh, patient to the, the psychedelic that they took in the trial was so unusual, uh, so different from what the psychiatrist was used to. They, they literally got up and said that they could not stay and they walked out of the room and made a comment about how they were not trained to deal with these types of responses. Um, and so, you know, it's, again, comes back to who's the team, how, co how comfortable do they feel with the unusual responses or the maybe unusual for mainstream mental health, but actually are pretty usual and, and not, you know, abnormal or bad uh, for psychedelic responses and experiences. Um, and how do we get people comfortable being able to support the person for whatever they're going through, uh, respecting what they're going through, their process, and support them 
um, even if it's not something that you yourself have experienced, even if the clinician has either had or not had psychedelic experiences, you may sit for someone who is undergoing something uh, very, very different from what is, you know, your usual frame of reference. And how do you make it about them and making sure that they feel safe and supported throughout? Um, that's, I think a lot of people would agree is, is pretty fundamental. Yeah, but I, I can't help it. But to make the point, don't you think it, it is important for people who will be holding space to be familiar with those states um, themselves? In other words, the question is, are people interested in working in the field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? Should they themselves have experience um, personally with altered states of consciousness? Mm-hmm. I. I think the way you put it is, is important, you know, having experience with altered states of consciousness, whether or not someone has ever taken a psychedelic, there seems to be things about different states of, of mind and, and the body that can be reached perhaps through meditation and other sort of very intensive focused practices that are likely very helpful for preparing people to sit for others. Um, I, I don't personally say that it should be a, a requirement that someone has prior experience with psychedelics in order to sit for someone. Um, but again, this is where, you know, who's the co-facilitator in the room? If there is someone, you know, what's that person's experience? And, um, and I think these can be empiric questions that we can, we can assess with time. Who seems to be a better guide? Is it someone who's had many sessions themselves? Um, and if you haven't had many experiences or any, um, are you, able to listen to people who have and learn from them about how to do this in a really safe and appropriate way. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say personally, before I was even a physician and I was doing um, participant observation uh, based research, and I had gotten to become friends with people who uh, were participants in um, ayahuasca churches that were, you know, legally drinking ayahuasca as a sacrament in, in different, in different settings. Um, it was very profound for me to learn from people with a lot of life experience, um, you know, working with these substances. And I, and I personally also, I drank ayahuasca. I've had those experiences. It's very informative for me to reflect on how, um, you know, what it might mean for someone to go through an experience like this and, and how, you know, not making it about me, but making about how can I, if I'm a clinician, be as supportive and helpful as I can my prior experiences were helpful for me in those reflections. Um, and so I think, I think it's important that people have those opportunities in ways that are safe and appropriate. Um, if they are going to take on the, again, the responsibility um, that comes with being a facilitator. Yes. So this uh, leads us into, you know, alongside <laughs> research alongside medicalization of psychedelics alongside uh, the measure in, in Oregon is is the is the other one is that instead of measure 109 it's 110 right the decriminalization of possession and personal use of drugs and so um, we know that is very important from a social political standpoint because of uh, the war on drugs because of mass incarceration and racism in this country um, and how a lot of people uh, have not been able to use their own medicines um, and have been uh, persecuted and put in prison because of that. So 
you know, Denver became the first city to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms in, in 2019, and then Massachusetts, Oakland, Santa Cruz, and Harbin, Washington, D.C. How about California? You know, what, how, where are the efforts to decriminalize psychedelic plants here? Yeah. Um, so, you know, right now in the California legislature, there is a bill that's being uh, considered to uh, decriminalize or, or make actually make lawful uh, the possession and, and use of, of psychedelic substances, uh, including in small group settings. Um, it's not a uh, piece of legislation that would authorize the uh, sale and, and distribution of, of psychedelics, but it would make it you know, no longer punishable by as a criminal offense to possess and use. Um, you know, I think there's, a, as you're saying, a lot more recognition that um, many people in this country feel that it's not right to put people in jail or to incarcerate people for using substances. Uh, we should that we should treat these uh, things as um, health issues, public health issues, and, and address them. Um, accordingly and also think about them as sort of larger social issues like you're like you're bringing up like what are the actual the costs of of incarceration of particular communities that have suffered so much because of drug laws um so in california it's interesting that there's um interest of decriminalizing lots of different types of drug use make, making um you know for instance there's been an attempt to make um uh, safe injection sites available, not for psychedelics, but for, for other substances in order to take a harm reduction approach to public health. Um, but also for psychedelics, there's, there is a push to fall in the steps of some other cities like our, um, right here in, in Oakland, California, there's, we've had, uh, decriminalized psychedelics actually for, for some time now. Um, thanks to the uh, local efforts of a number of people who, you know, worked really hard to make that happen with the Oakland City Council. Um, and, and we may follow at a state level. Um, but if we do, again, all these issues of, of training, supervision, learning, and, and again, safety, all the safety around this is going to become far more important if, if many people feel that um, they might want to do, start doing this um, or they become you know, interested in, in learning more about it. We're gonna need a lot more education about how to do this safely if, it's, if it can be safe, you know, uh, and it's not probably safe for everyone, which we should also be, we should be talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I, you know, I like to look at examples in other places in the world and how they're doing it, you know, and so, Portugal shows up as an example, Um, the Netherlands, um, you know, Austria and Jamaica where, you know, psilocybin is is legal. And um, in Portugal specifically, when they um, really uh, decriminalized all all the drugs, uh, there was excellent results. You know, you had... uh, overdose was less prison overcrowding was less addiction rates fell and cases of disease related to drug injection also dramatically fell so they had like an overall in in including um yeah so people becoming less addicted 
you know, and so they had a very positive uh, uh, results overall. The only thing is that they had more more um, homicides because the gangs thought, you know, it was all free for all and there was a lot of encounters with the police. But um, other than that, on a, on a social level and on a health level, it was better in every aspect. So it's, you know, something for us to, to see the, how, how much... Um, the society would hold and how much uh, the ethics and the and the therapeutics would come together if um, the decriminalization you know passes and 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 people are allowed to then you know design uh, ways in which people can explore this safely yeah a- I mean I think part of the success in Portugal was also really making available social services and health services for people who who did have, you know, sometimes issues with using substances in ways that were not healthy or, or you know, very helpful for them. And, you know, and that I think comes back to this issue of, so, so what are the structures that uh, come into place? You know, and I, you know, I think uh, I always come back to this reference that in, in my life is, you know, uh, Brazil, and how they've uh, treated ayahuasca churches there, you know, announcing that they were going to be um, allowed to to function as as part of the cultural patrimony of, of Brazil, going back many years. Initially, starting in the in the 80s, and then sort of that being ratified more around 2010. Um, and it's not just that you know anyone goes and just makes ayahuasca wherever they want and they drink it whenever they want. There's a very strong culture of, of ritual and respect, respect of, of tradition and teachings and, um, and having oversight. And, and I think it's incredibly powerful to think about how communities can organize around um, responsible, safe, very respectful use. Um, and the communities can uh, hold their own members accountable and make sure that within themselves, without the intervention of medical professionals, without the intervention of legal uh, sanctions, um, that they enforce their own standards of, of safe practice. Um, this is a very powerful way for us to think about what can be appropriate for substance use. Um, and you know, I'm curious to see what types of traditions and social norms and social controls, um, you know, can be created or already have been created in the United States that we're going to start to learn more about as the um, as decriminalization and regulations um, happen more and more in this country with psychedelics and and potentially open up new possible of uh, forms of of uh, cultural forms and and ways of making this hopefully safe for for use here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. So the larger structures, you know, like you mentioned with Portugal, it's true. Their social services and programs and and therapy and all of that. And as well as um, the example from Brazil of communities and a connection to, to land and to culture um, and to, to community. And so there is an accountability and there is a support there. And, the, and, and it's inaccessible and available uh, to everybody who wishes to partake in that. Mm-hmm. So we're coming kind of th- to the end of our time today. But, but for you personally, what, what have been some of the major influences that, that led you to this work? Um, you know, um, I started, you know, learning about psychedelics and wanting to research them, you know, 
years and years ago before um, before it was much of a field. And actually when many of my mentors warned me that it was a very hard field to be in and, or didn't really even exist yet. And they, many people at that time were discouraging young people like myself from even getting involved. Um, but I found it very compelling for the reason that as a number of people have um, said in this field that psychedelics seem to be compared to other forms of uh, treatment that we have in, at least in modern medicine today, they seem to be um, meaning-making medicines. They seem to be interventions that help people find meaning and purpose, or at least that that leave people with the sensation that they've been in touch with something very meaningful, even if, as I think we know, um, sometimes after psychedelic experiences, it might be hard to articulate what exactly that meaningful piece of information or that insight was. Um, but the but the experience of of being in touch with something very profound, um, something that seemed to happen sometimes over and over again with psychedelics. Um, and, and for me, that's something that either through my work in, in social sciences and anthropology or, or as a psychiatrist working with patients, um, something about helping people find meaning uh, in their life and in their experiences is such a fundamental, I think, need of, of people. I mean, Viktor Frankl said this, many people in humanistic psychology have said this, um, and I don't know of too many other interventions that can so powerfully and potently give people an experience of, of uh, really intense um, meaning. Uh, and so for me, that underlies it and also underlies my, my interest in, in things like demoralization and, and people finding meaning and purpose when they struggle with uh, significant illnesses is I think this is a great tool for potentially addressing a lack of meaning in life and hopelessness. And I, I really hope uh, I would feel very um, fortunate to get to continue doing this work um, and see how reliably and safely we can use these tools to help people find meaning again. And you're currently connected at UCSF. I know that they're bringing some uh, special people over from Europe. But I also know that you are going to be connected to a center here in Berkeley. Um, so what, what, what is your vision for your work? Where are you going? What, what, what's coming um, in terms of your own manifestation and your vision yeah. for this work? Um, so, yeah, at... At UCSF, there's a number of investigators. There's a really rich community here of people studying psychedelics, both to look at sort of the mechanisms of how they maybe work in the brain, but also how they can be used as treatments. Um, and uh, it's yeah, it's exciting to be part of that community. Um, but also, um, you know, being um, affiliated with the new center at the University of California, Berkeley, the, the Center for the Science of Psychedelics, um, it's been a really... Um, awesome opportunity to get to work with an interdisciplinary group of uh, researchers um, to think through how this center could be used for um, conducting human research in this area. Um, also doing what I think is really important is the sort of public education around these substances and, and the potential impact of the research. Uh, as well as working with um, colleagues at, in different schools at UC Berkeley uh, and at the neighboring uh, institute, the, the Graduate Theological Union, to think about how we can do really good training for um, becoming a, a facilitator and providing these experiences for diverse 
set of people, whether they be patients um, or just sort of healthy volunteers in research or even um, religious and spiritual care professionals. Um, it's been yeah, very rich to see a strong interest from Berkeley and GTU and, and people elsewhere and thinking through how these, you know, these core um, elements of this work, research, training, and education can all come together. Um, so I'm excited to see what, you know, what we're going to be able to do there as well. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a wonderful project. And when do you think that will come into manifestation, into fruition? Well, the, the UC Berkeley um, Center launched uh, last year, and, and we hope to start our, our research studies early in uh, 2022. So, so look out for that. Thank you, Brian, so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you tonight. And I hope that the audience received a lot of good information and feel stimulated by your presence here with us today. Do you have any final comments, anything else that you wish to say before we end our time together? Thanks. Well, thanks for having me, Giselle. It's it's a pleasure to get to, to chat with you. And um, I'll just say, you know, this is a very exciting time for the field. It seems like a lot is happening and a, and a lot new sort of endeavors with psychedelic medicines are coming forward. And, you know, this is just a really small tip of the iceberg, all the medical research and and the, the focus on um, and companies and science, I really feel is, is a very sort of pale comparison to a lot of knowledge that's been in the different communities that have used these substances for generations, if not centuries. And it's just, it's good for us to keep that in mind and keep some humility about this work. It's very exciting and it's, uh, it's very promising. And yet at the same time, people like myself who do research, we're, we're just beginning, just beginning to, to learn about this field. And I, I think we should keep that in mind and, and think about the, the people who came before us and the communities that still do this work and probably will do it you know, for many generations to come. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities. <laughs>